0: This episode was recorded on the country of the Gadigal people of the Eora nation. We'd like to extend our respects to their elders past, present and emerging. And we'd like to extend those respects to the traditional custodians on the lands wherever you may listen to this podcast.
1: One of the things that a few of my good friends who who I used to work with were like, don't you think you'll be bored being a farmer? You know, after where you've done this sort of complex strategic work, do you not think you'll find that dull? And I was like, gosh, I don't think so.
0: Well, g'day and welcome back to the Humans of Agriculture podcast. As always, I'm your host, Oli Leave, and it's an absolute pleasure to be joining you again for another episode. I was absolutely blown away last week from the feedback from Grace McLeod's episode. It was amazing to see just how much everyone got behind it and just the different takeaways that people had from it. Well, our next guest, I reckon he's equally as impressive. When I met Charlie Perry last year up at Beef Australia, I was blown away by his charisma, knowledge, and just how easy he was to get on with. It's no surprise that Charlie has an extraordinary background. I really enjoyed this chat. It's honest, enjoyable, and incredibly relatable, and there's something in it for everyone. Charlie's interest beyond the farm gate took him to management consulting firm Ernst & Young, He's played a really important role in shaping his current role where he's managing the family farming operation as well as chairing the Australian Wagyu Association. Charlie did joke that it was a bit of a dream of his to be on a podcast and it's not every week that we make dreams come true. He may or may not have appeared on a couple before, but as the Xander McDonald award winner this year, I don't think it will be his last. Before we jump into it, I just want to preface this chat we did have a few sound issues throughout we may have had a slight blackout but we managed to jump on the landline and finish the chat off enjoy the conversation i can't wait to hear what your takeaways are from it i think we just start off and and probably mentioning charlie that that today we're able to make a dream come true for you not not every day this kind of happens where someone can fulfill a lifelong ambition or just the last few years of coming on a podcast welcome to the humans of agriculture podcast
1: <laughs> oh thanks ollie and before we get started congratulations on a big hundred i, I believe um i'm um starting starting the, the, the next century. So, mate, that's that's an amazing achievement. I, and a lot of people in ag, and I'm sure outside of agriculture, have been a long-time admirer but, um, of the work you're doing. But, yes, mate, I, I must confess, in, the, um, in the, the depths of the 2018 and 19 drought, I would literally pound podcast after podcast into the ground as I uh, sat on the mixing wagon. I often wondered if there was a podcast released in the English language, which I hadn't listened to. And I was like... <laughs> My life's ambition is one day to get on one. I even thought about starting my own podcast just to interview myself to get on one. So, mate, to be on one, especially as esteemed as yours, mate, it's a dream come true. So, thanks for your time, Ollie. It sounds like I might have
0: missed the boat. I might I should, probably should have got in in 2018 or 19, but I guess the beginning <laughs> of 2020 will do. <laughs> yeah, thanks, mate. I just want to start off. You've got plenty happening in your world, Charlie. You've been on New Zealand radio, but... Uh, off the back of winning the Xander McDonald award recently. And then Guyra show this week, is this just a, a normal kind of week in, in the life of Charlie Perry?
1: Absolutely not, mate. <laughs> I, um. I think the expression my family used when we were trying to truck cattle and I had to duck off to sit in the ute for some quiet time for my second interview was, you're a bloody media Um But um, no, mate, not at all. It's um, in, in all seriousness, the um, you know the Xander Award um, for Australia occurred last week and it was just a, a wonderful experience to be involved with. Um, I haven't really been involved with other... Awards before, so I can't speak to how they run, but gosh, you know, Richard Rains and his team um make a huge effort to make sure that anyone is who is involved as a finalist just gets just it's a wonderful experience. Um so the connections we made um throughout that, there was some training and just the conversations had around the dinner table with some genuine leaders in agriculture was just a wonderful experience. So, you know, to ultimately win was, was um, you know, quite overwhelming and humbling. But I think, you know, without sounding bleib, anyone who was there would consider that they'd got an enormous amount from it.
0: Um, I'm intrigued because you say just there that you haven't won many awards or put your hat in the ring for many awards. So what spurred you on this time to throw your hat in the ring?
1: Um, I think... Um, a a local um, girl or recently local girl who I got to know through Beef Week, um, Jess Webb, who's on the the board of the the Beef Australia um, Committee. Um, She and her husband, Hamish, moved to the area a couple of years ago and um, we sort of become friends through there. But she, um, I think she was aware of the award and um, suggested I I have a crack. And um, I think it took seven periods of nudging. You know, I think most farmers are... Um, you know, people who work in their industry sort of stick in their lane and do their day-to-day thing. But um, And it can take some encouragement to, um, you know, I guess put your, put your hat in the ring. Um, but, you know, on that it would be remiss of me not to, to, uh, to say to anyone else out there who's under 35 and involved in ag um it's, it's just a wonderful experience so um I would definitely encourage other people to be involved and Ollie I know you were a finalist last year and I'm sure you would echo that sentiment it's it's really a wonderful a wonderful program
0: I think as you said those kind of few days you get and and the contacts well that's it kind of yeah meeting and getting to know John McKillop more there and and the team at LAWD they were the first kind of sponsor it opens doors kind of amazingly within within weeks kind of potentially even within hours of being in the same room as those people so now i want to um i want to jump back throw it back to your childhood charlie and and you can talk to us all about that now i'd love to know has has gara always been home you're back on the family property now so has that been in the family for forever
1: no not not forever i think my family uh moved here about um 45 years ago so um still not locals yet i think would be the um the way of looking at that um my old neighbor who'd been here for about 120 years um still used to think that at 40 years we had them over for a, a drink to celebrate he's like you still haven't had time to unpack your suitcase mate um to my dad well i'm a local because i was born here but <laughs> so it's, it's a wonderful wonderful community um uh yes but it, it's it's always it's always been home I mean I've I've done a few other different things that I'm you know back back where I was back where I was born but it's um you know I think most people have very fond memories of their childhood and where they grew up especially bush kids and and mine was no different um so yeah it's 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 lovely to be home as a
0: young fellow was it did you want to be a farmer and just be like dad
1: Yeah, yeah, I I absolutely did. Um, I had a um, somewhat um, slightly overbearing older brother. He wouldn't like me using those phrases. So we had a a string of entrepreneurial ventures throughout our period as kids, some desperately unsuccessful. I remember a tragic uh, worm farm that we tried to install. I don't know where we were going to sell the worms or how we were going to sell the worms, but they died very quickly. And then um, we moved into wood chopping because for those who don't um, no Armadale, highest regional city, very cold. Anyway, we had the absolute wood market. So no, uh, we were the mafia of the wood market at sort of 10 and 12. Anyway, we um so would spend all weekends and holidays cutting wood and then seeing, selling it into town for 70 bucks a tonne. Anyway, it would have been Christmas a few years ago that we were um, sitting down talking about what goers we were as young bucks and how much money we made. And Dad uh, politely reflected that... He provided and serviced two chainsaws. He used to provide his wood. He used to drive a 160-kilometer round trip to drop off the wood, and he calculated at the cost him $68 for us to deliver a $70 ton of wood. So, um, fortunately, we weren't introduced to the concept of uh, profit and expense at that point. We were all profit. But it was, um, <laughs> <laughs> but you know, just the typical stuff. Like we love the animals, the sheep and cattle, and and yeah, sort of, um, yeah, life, life growing up here was, was a lot of fun. So, you know, I left in, um, um, when I finished school, um, you know, just thinking back on that time, it was a pretty rough commodity cycle for a lot of farmers in the sort of mid nineties, early two thousands, we were super fine wool, wool, predominantly super fine wool, um, growers and we'd come across foot rot. So I think there was a, um, you know there was a real period of um you know it was pretty hard to make ends meet especially with the 90s drought so you know mum and dad were like you can always come home but first of all you need to go and do something else to to demonstrate you can earn an income outside of farming
0: and that's where it took you down the path of an arts and commerce degree which is interesting i think to be back in ag and we'll talk about some of the roles you hold now but that the decision to study arts and commerce what was kind of the driver behind that
1: just always interested in like you know um arts type things that um at school like you know uh history and la- literature and you know that, that sort of stuff so i studied history and philosophy i've got to admit um my major in german philosophy not that useful day-to-day here on the <laughs> cattle block um but also did um commerce i did um international business and accounting which was um yeah, I guess when you run a business, the kind of accounting background is is quite useful, especially with businesses like Ag, where you know, managing things like cash flow and balance sheet and those things can be, you know, a little tricky, especially when it doesn't rain.
0: I did hear on the New Zealand podcast the other day that you might have been on a Kentucky trip, so maybe that's where the German philosophy piece came in and, and was quite
1: useful. <laughs> <laughs> Mate, oh, I'm not entirely sure. Maybe it was a, a chronic lack of imagination, and that G was the first for the, the the first the first um, box to tick. But no, it was. I mean, I think uni is such a great opportunity to to study different things you never never think to, and just get a, bit of a st- different style of of um, looking at the world. I guess. So, did you know what you wanted to do either at school or at uni? I think um, I ultimately I always knew that I wanted to come back and be involved with the farm. I just, I mean, probably like you i are pretty passionate and motivated. And when I get into something, I want to do well at it. So I, I was always interested in that kind of business advisory consulting type world where you could work on different industries, different projects. And, um, You know, there was always a, a possibility there to get, you know, a rapid exposure to a range of different people and industries. But, you know, I think, I don't know what the statistics are at the moment, but, you know, people don't necessarily wake up one day and start a job and do that for 40 years. You know, I think often people's career paths sort of meander. And I think it's important as you do that, that you build up different skill sets that you can then apply to, um, um, you know, the the next role that you have. And and oddly enough, you know, a lot of the skills I got in in that world have been really useful for my current role.
0: I was going to say, yeah, the the world of consulting, I did it for a short period of time, not the eight years that you did, but the exposure and, and even if the outside of industry, Pieces that really open your eyes. Like I worked on a um, water and utilities company, like customer journey, and it was just fascinating where you think of all the touch points. But you worked on some pretty cool projects uh, as part of that as well, didn't you?
1: Yeah, No, I, I, I did. The, the last 18 months I was, I was working, we were working on the, um, the commercial evaluation for, for um, the submarine acquisition, which if you read the newspaper in a couple of months, this was like seven years ago. That's no longer relevant. Um, you know, a real kick to the guts for you. <laughs> no, no, not at all. It's 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 um, your taxpayer dollar at work. I can't imagine how much they spent to to get to that point. But that was interesting because you know when you're buying the largest infrastructure spend in Australia's history, you know, it just raises all sorts of complexities. Like you buy a submarine off the shelf. And then how do you have the capability in Australia to service that? Or do you, like, build it down in Adelaide in a Liberal seat and, you know, add another election victory if you've added 1,000 jobs? You know, there's, there's a lot that, that goes into into something like that. But it's, um yeah, yeah, it was, it was, it was fascinating and got exposure to some wonderful, wonderful people there. Um, but I always knew, I guess in my gut, that's not, what i what i wanted to do so when the opportunity arose to to come home um i sort of took it with both hands it's quite funny reflecting on that moment um i was actually um on a probably not a very successful date at bondi junction and i saw a couple of missed calls from my parents i think to save us both from a pretty awkward conversation i took the third call and um they said, we've got a bloke, an agent, who wants to buy a home, Trent Bridge, but, they, but they're also looking at next door, so they want to sort of aggregate the two and make a bigger play. What do you think? And I was like, oh, okay, that's interesting. Anyway, the next morning I was flying to, 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 to Canberra at 7am or QF, or whatever, and I rocked up and met the partner was like, i got to go home. And so, yeah, sort of resigned quite quickly. Um, and I think, you know, the, the point was like, I think my parents were like, at some point you need to make a decision. You know, you need to decide whether to, whether to come home and join the family farm or 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 keep keep going on your sort of alternate career path. But I just feel so lucky. Um, like A lot of people love working in agriculture and don't have that opportunity to 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 go and do what I've I've done, so I'm I'm very grateful for the opportunity to go and join our, our family business. Was that a fairly passive aggressive? Uh, why are your parents doing it? <laughs> they deny this narrative a hundred percent, and I'm like, guys, like that is absolutely. Lame. There's
0: there's two things I remember very clearly about that day. One, the, the date was definitely not good, and two, I remember the phone call.
1: <laughs> um, no, I think, um, I don't know. It's, um, I think in life, there's always times where you need to make a decision um, and, uh, you know, big, big, important decisions. And, um, at, you know, you can think about it and think about it and think about it, but at some point you've got to, you know, piss or get off the pot. Yeah. Do you ever look Um up? Never, never. I, I, I used to um, think about that a lot with friends who are still in Sydney and they're like, don't you miss it? And I'm like, I'm the stage past missing it where I don't think about it. (laughs) Um, You know, I was just so happy to be, to be home and felt really lucky. It was interesting. Um, One of the things that a few of my good friends who, who I used to work with were like, don't you think you'll be bored being a farmer, you know, after where you've done this sort of complex strategic work, do you not think you'll find that dull? And I was like, gosh, I don't think so. Cause like, While I was away, I would still speak to dad. Like, I'm very close with my parents and I'd still speak to dad at 7am every morning about what was happening on the farm for years. So I knew what was happening and I was like, you know, I don't think that's simple. But, you know, I don't think that will be intellectually, you know, challenging. But, But in actual fact, I find farming, like, the most intellectually complex thing by far i've ever done and and maybe that's because i'm pretty simple and i'm still getting my head around it all but just the the number of variables that you're dealing with all the time i mean especially as we've tried to um expand over the last few years and expand through um you know difficult periods it's just um you often feel like you've sort of got a thousand balls in the air and You're just trying to keep your eye on all of them. So, yeah, that's a very long way of saying, you know, it was the complete opposite of what other people projected onto what farmers do. You know, often we're doing menial sort of mind-numbing jobs. We're sitting on a tractor or we're pulling up a fencing wire. But the other part of that, which I love, to be honest, but the other part of that is like, you know, there are multiple different scenarios going on at one time and you need to try and pick the best best outcome which i often get wrong just as a disclosure. <laughs> oh
0: god talking it down I, I want to flip back because you mentioned the farm went through a really tough time as a super fo- fine wool growing operation you then got foot rot so i want to and, and in that last sentence you're talking about the complexity of the farming business but that decision either for, for you or for your, your your parents to make that decision to change enterprises completely what, what was that like? How disruptive was that for you
1: guys going from sheep to beef? Yeah, so we always had a beef component, but we were predominantly um, super fine wool. And it's a really interesting thing, and I've spoken to Dad a lot about this, about the sort of decision-making process through. And, you know, there's these elements of like, um, and I think I would really struggle with this, was like pride or um not i I'm trying to think of the right word, but like that had been breeding these great wool sheep for sort of 20 years and each year your genetics are getting better and better and better. So when we got foot rot, you've got a, a couple of paths that you can go down, but we went down the path of like, let's treat these animals and try and manage it and contain it and then continue with the uh the 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 flock that we're the the, the the um the herd that we've got um because there's been so much time love and investment in getting to the product that we have at this moment but god that was a lot of tough years getting to that point and ultimately we were essentially we, we couldn't get it under control and we were giving away you, you know it was because we're always very careful about our animal welfare like that's we're you know, my mum, my dad, like we all really care about the animals. So when it was really affecting their well-being, you know, we had to get rid of them pretty quickly. And you know, in actual fact, but I mean every everything's clear in hindsight. It probably would have been better to be like, this is not working. We need to you know, get rid of the sheep and then do something. But it was it was a brutal couple of years. I, I remember that well. I mean, I was young, but um the, the the school holidays we were spending a lot of time bathing, bathing sheep in foot baths
0: so guys we're about to have a little bit of a quality change when we're recording this charlie had a power outage and we went into a complete blackout so we jumped across onto the landline and recorded the rest of the chat there the humans of agriculture podcast is proudly sponsored by lawd and if you're looking for an entry-level role well they've got an absolutely incredible opportunity for you joining their fast growing team and getting direct guidance from cold medway one of Australia's leading rural property agents. The role will be riding shotgun with Cole as he travels Australia marketing a diverse range of ag assets. To find out more, check out the full description and contact details in the show notes. From growing sheep through the foot rot and the learnings, you were saying, actually, I'm going to ask you a question on that because you were saying there was a lot of emotion tied into just kind of trying and trying and trying to get these sheep Better, in a sense. Are you able to look at that now or, or potentially with that consulting lens that you you bring to the business in a more rational way or do you still find yourself, yeah, kind of being drawn into that emotional piece of always putting the animal, well, not always, but yeah, putting the animals before kind of the business
1: decision? It, it It's a great question, Ollie, and it's actually something I've thought about a lot because I mean, if you look at Australian beef, for example, I mean, I think we could sit here and talk about, you know, 10 beef brands, for example, beef um, um, types, which have had huge booms and then lost lost the um, the, the demand from, from the consumer. So we're in the, the seed stock business now selling Wagyu bulls as one of our enterprises. And... Um, you know, I've often, you know, said to, to the dad, like, you know, for example, limos. Fifteen years ago, huge focus on, um, you know, lean meat, and there were a lot of limo studs around. You know, there's not as many anymore. You know, um, similar thing with Murray Grays, and I was like, you'd really hope if, you know, just within the context of the footlot where we we kept chasing this 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 diminishing return. Um, and, and probably too far, you know, and, and that'd be the first to admit that, um, you, you would hope that you could separate the um, the emotion and um, the, the sort of ego around that investment um, uh, from from the commercial reality. And um, I honestly don't know. Like, I, I try and, with our business, bring a lot of, like, structure and rational sort of, um, planning to it, however, I think like you know, I love breeding cattle, and so does my family. And I think if you know something changed significantly, and there was you know the the, the market no longer liked this style of animal that we breed, I would find I would hope that we could adjust. But I would find that that uh, that. would be a a a consideration where there would be some some emotion in it you know we're not always perfect rational beings
0: yeah tell me speaking on the emotional piece like so you came home 2015-16 seasons were pretty good but then as you mentioned coming into 18-19
1: hi i'm pia horticulture and sugar analyst at rabobank and i'm here to share our latest insights on australia's vegetable market Did you know, in 2023,
0: Australia produced over $5.8 billion worth of vegetables, though
1: only 4.3% of this was exported. Like many other countries, the Australian vegetable industry relies mostly on its domestic market. In fact, only 7% of global vegetables produced are traded between countries. But we are starting to see that trend change. Global trade is growing at a faster rate than production, and countries with low-cost production are seeing the highest growth rates. You can learn more about trends in the vegetable market on our latest Rabo Research Australia podcast, mapping world vegetable trade, or reach out to me via the Rabobank Australia social media channels to learn more.
0: The worst drought in well, yeah, in, in Australia's recorded history. What was that like for you at home? And and did you start to
1: question your, your decisions a lot? Oh, absolutely. I mean, I think the one thing we were good at as a sort of management team. It's like we 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 never put our head in the sands. Like we were always, you know, what's our goal? Goal one was to retain our core breeding herd of stud cattle because that would be incredibly difficult to replace. You know, how are we going to do that? We need to improve our feeding um, infrastructure. So, you know, board... Good tractor and good mixer and good loader and things like that. You know, number three, like I did those. We did those two things in um in eighteen, but we didn't get a good nutritionist. So there was quite a learning there where we we weren't necessarily feeding the right fodder. We, you know that we're getting the the best value. So, um, you know, we, we were always quite structured in how we we did that. But um, you know, we reached towards the end of nineteen, maybe mid nineteen, and we were like you know, at some point this season must break. So we bought another block next door to our, another place we have towards Evil, which is, you know, very traditionally very high rainfall area. And, you, you know, it didn't rain, or it didn't grow grass. And then three weeks later, it um, it burnt. <laughs> and we're sort of taking around fire. He's trying to get control of it and you couldn't see 10 metres. And I didn't know the place at all. And then we're sort of evacuating cattle. So, you know, it's kind of like that expression where, you know, you can put a a toad in or a frog in up hot water and it'll jump straight out or you can put it in cold water and turn the temperature up and it sort of, it just stays there. And I think a lot of people in our community really felt like um, we've gone so far on this sort of feeding wagon, it's like this feeding feeding program, don't don't stop, don't stop because you just feel like when it breaks they'll be worth a lot but the question is when it will. And that was, um, um, yeah, it was tough. Like I think, um, you know, I I feel very lucky. Like I've got a, a lot of good mates. It's like if we didn't get another if we didn't get a rainfall event for another couple of months then I don't I don't know what we would have done but since then it started raining and kept raining and we all of a sudden look very clever keeping our cattle herd through through that period but you know I'm not sure how that would have panned out if it hadn't um, if it hadn't gone that way
0: were you guys talking much like at that time of yeah what the next kind of Point of instigation for an action was like if by the twentieth of January, if it hasn't rained, then here's our next step. Well, you got, do you start to talk in that way, or is it very much day by day?
1: Oh, it's um, <laughs> it, it, it's a combination of both. Like I think one thing that was helpful for us is um, my wife very involved in our business, but also works full time, so. I think sometimes she would have that capacity to be a little bit more objective and rational about when we'd sit down for a meeting. You know, we're like, you know, we said if it hadn't rained on the 20th of January, then those next 100 Angus cows were going. You know, that's what we do. I mean, that's what we discussed. We're still doing that. And I think sometimes it's really handy. Um, I mean, she's still very involved in the business. Would spend all weekend helping with feed, But I think when you're not there's all day sourcing the commodities or something like that. Or maybe it's just a personality strength that I don't have. Like just to be able to step away from the business and go, so this is what we said we're going to do. Are we going to do that? And um, I think um, that that's helpful for any organisation is just sometimes whether it's you know, having someone outside, the absolute grind, doing it every day to be like, this is what we said we're going to do. We, we just need to make sure we, we do that. So, yeah, we we did it. We weren't perfect at it. Like there was a lot of times where we like we said we'd get rid of all the angers if it hadn't rained by January, and it's now March, and we're just hope holding on. And, um, but you know, we we certainly we certainly try to have that plan and execute it.
0: In terms of, and I know there's there's a whole leadership program out and a and a kind of a huge amount of funding from the federal government around. Basically, drought resilient communities. W- what was the flow on impact, kind of in in your local towns, when? Yeah, I, I guess you guys as farmers, you're flat out on the farm doing the day to day stuff, but you're not spending the money in town. Did the, did? Yeah. What What did the town look
1: like as you guys came out of the out of the drought? Oh, well, it was you know it was it was awful. Um, you know, Armidale, which is sort of one of my closer towns, had some other industries. That you know towns like Guyron, and as you move you know our, in our area further west out around Moree and Gundawindi, and you know where they hadn't had a crop for two years, you know the, they are agricultural towns, and they they say and it was the same for us. They they require the farmers to go in and buy fertilizer and buy a trench and buy a vaccine and you know fencing gear and that times of thousand, and then spend their money at the local coffee shop, and the the economy definitely. You know, it's quite interesting, it's something I think about a lot is like, you know, there was such um it raised the question of how complicated it is to, to give support or aid, you know. Um, we just run out of order for Is it, this is this is it your time to show No, no, no. It, it's very it's very difficult. Like I remember the the day that um, there was a, the drought subsidy went in, cotton seed went up like 150 bucks. So if you're already buying fodder and had the You know, I'm not saying that I'm unappreciative as a farmer in those tough times for the, the assistance of the, the, the government, and we're so lucky that they did step in in ways, But you know, I'm skeptical that market manipulation like that ever really works. Um, I just often see just transfers, <laughs> just transfers the cost from product A to product B.
0: Mm, for sure. You know, one of the one of the reasons I I went into con- like corporate consulting, and I joined. Um, one of the big four was it was at the end of 2019. And I, I just couldn't get my head around that in Australia, like we've only got 25 million people. So we're not huge in population, but we are very developed. How the hell were there towns like you guys that were literally running out of water and the only way to get drinking water, I just, I couldn't get my head around it. And I was like, I want to join this corporate mob because in regional Australia and in Australian Australia, 2019 there shouldn't be places that run out of water we shouldn't be using drinking water to flush our toilets blah blah blah. Mm. surely if those challenges can be overcome one of these big consulting groups is one of the ones that need to lead the way and be thought leaders on it but then actually yeah provide the framework in how it could be implemented that was my uh my big lofty ambition i didn't quite get to it but (laughs) but i I
1: like i mean how lucky is it that pwc or you with have people who want to do those things and that's exactly the type of people we need in, you know, local council or sort of consulting around because they're,
0: It's kind of frustrating though that we're not trying to come up with solutions for those things now like we're gonna hopefully not but come into the next drought and potentially find ourselves in the next decade or so in a similar situation to what we were three or four years ago and it's just been yeah put on the back bench and it'll confront us again but then it yeah do we and this broader society do you learn when those real challenges
1: come around Yeah, and and if it's local councils or even individual farmers, like if we're not responding and learning from that, you know, we're just, um, you know, not to enter into some sort of climate debate. But I think anyone who thinks we're not going to have a good whack of a drought at some point is is more optimistic than I am. And, Mm. um, you know, to not learn and know that we've got, I mean, (laughs) one. One of the ways I think about this is, and which I guess makes it, which probably helps explain how we struggle in our area was, you know, I dabbled at stats at university. I was probably rubbish at it. But our previous one in 100-year-low rainfall event was 22 inches. And in 2019, we got 11. So, you know, if you think about distribution and likelihood to beat your one in 100-year event by, like, to harbour is, Incredibly unlikely, um, but we now know that's the new one in 101 years or whatever it was, so we need to, we need to know that that's the new baseline and be able to manage for it. So um, to think that it won't happen again, gosh, I hope it doesn't, but I think we'd be wildly optimistic.
0: Mm. Oh, I, I want to change gear slightly. Because you're involved outside the farm gate as well, and, and I know you've mentioned the family have been involved in the Wagyu industry for 20 plus years. but You're actually the chair of the Australian Wagyu Association and have been involved on the board of that for for quite a few years now. I, I want to know, sitting in the chair seat, and you're well, we know you're under 35 because of the Xander Award. H- have you ever had those moments, and maybe you're too proud to say it, but uh, where where you're sitting there and you've got high-flying individuals, potentially big personalities, and you think, holy hell, I'm not qualified to be sitting in this seat.
1: (laughs) Of course, I have to say no to that, Ollie. (laughs) (laughs) We have a board meeting on Tuesday and I can't ram in and throw a vote of no confidence just yet. (laughs) Um, I think, um, no, not particularly. I'm really lucky where I've got um, in my orbit of great friends and people who I'm just desperately impressed by what they've done and often at you know quite a young age. You know, one of my um, best mates, um, who I'm also in a joint venture with um, on the NAG properties, just at a very young age, has done some incredible things and been able to set up an environment where he's been able to buy an incredible T1 farm by like the age of 30. And my brother and his business partner set up a really, you know, interesting and successful business as well. So I, I've always felt like um, um, when when people have done like that, in I guess you're close to orbit, you're like, you don't feel that young anymore and that you should be um, participating. Um, having said that, though, I have quite a collegial style of, Leadership, I hope, where um, you know that expression if you're the smartest person in the room, you're in the wrong room. Mm. Um, On our board, we have just some phenomenally talented directors who run, I think, some of the best agricultural operations in Australia. Um, So I know they're so much smarter and so much more experienced than I am, but I guess I bring a different lens to the table. I've got, you know, very good commercial analytical skills. Like I've had a lot of experience with through my time in consulting, like governance and strategy and risk management and those things like that. So ultimately, you just need to make sure that you you, you chair the meeting in a direction that, that need, is needed. But also, I guess I'm um, I'm comfortable enough in um, in what I think the um, the the association needs to do to to provide some leadership around that. But moreover, like I think. Um, you know, we've got a very strong, high-functioning board, which makes my job easier. But we've just got, like, an exceptional CEO and CFO and, you know, chief technical officer. So so the association is very strong. So it makes it for a, a, a relatively easy easy job in that sense. All about the people you've got around you. 100%. And being rewarding them, like, um, uh, and investing in them, you know. But but, um, beyond the executive, we've got some just great young people in the association who just absolutely deliver for the members. So the the question I'm always asking the CEO is, how are you going to retain them? You know, how do you make an environment that they don't want to leave? Because, you know, we are in a rural area and, um, you know, good people are just invaluable.
0: 100%. I do and that flows nicely into this Xander piece because you've obviously got some incredible mentors around you. But as part of the Xander Award, and for those who have listened this far, you you are the 2022 Australian Xander McDonald Award winner. So that's an incredible feat in, in itself. Th- this mentoring trip is there a specific area or or people that you've kind of have on the bucket list that you want to lean on um, as part of that?
1: Oh, absolutely. And I think um. Um, you know, just while we were at the the judging um, or, or that weekend, um, you know, I'm obviously a, a seed stock producer, and you know, around the table at the dinner, I was you know was sitting opposite Prue Bonfield from Powergrove, and you know, they essentially created a breed, and I don't know how many bulls they sell, but I'm pretty sure they went from like 500, 50 stud cows to two and a half thousand, you know you know, Tamani or Angus sells something like eight hundred bulls in a year, you know, just to to sit and be able to yarn to these people who the absolute um, pointy end of Australian genetics and data management and you know, herd improvement was just just wonderful. But I obviously don't want to limit it to to that. I think um, um you know, for example last year's winner, Rosie um works at lamb Pro and I've just been fascinated with what they're, they're doing down there, you know, just in terms of the volume of data that they collect, but also their genuine thought and market leaders in trying to carve out a, an area for their, for their luxury um, lamb. I just hope they're not too bloody successful because we like our little luxury beef space without too much competition. <laughs> well,
0: they're certainly doing all right around the corner here in, in Molara.
1: Uh, yeah, Victor yeah. Churchill's. They had Victor Churchill. Yeah, <laughs> that place no, incredible. it's um a hundred bucks for a chop. It's um it's awesome. It's just it's wonderful, wonderful to see. But you know, Victor's is an amazing example where it just it just elevates food and, and the production systems of all the different farms in it. And um, and I just think it's a wonderful comment a concept where um, to go and buy a beautiful bit of meat is you know a luxury item and. Something people really enjoy and get great experience from. So I love that agriculture's, you know, heading down
0: heading down that trail. I am. Um, I do want to get the guys at Victor's. I, I feel like it's walking into a museum or like a gallery when you walk in. There. Mm. It is just an absolute masterpiece. I did. Uh, uh, yeah. I, I will get them on the podcast at some stage just because I want to understand where that passion comes from because it's just. It is like watching
1: musicians nearly. <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I don't own an expensive watch, but I imagine that would be what it would feel like. to all, you know, to walk into a jewellery store or something like that, and it's all it's all quite um quite impressive.
0: Charlie, I've got one more question, and although Alice did take the mickey, Alice edits the podcast. She uh she got into me because she's like, I ask this question really funny every time. So anyway, jumping into it, you get the chance to go back to a high school and chat to Year Ten students and talk to them about why they should consider a career in agriculture,
1: what would be your messages to them? What I would say to them is, um, I would give them an anecdote, which is something I think about a lot. You've worked in the city before, Ollie. When you go out on a Friday night and you have a couple of skirters with your mates who either you work with or, you know, you're sort of peers in that area. My memory was, is that we talked about anything but work. When you come back into agriculture, what I find is that when you socialise, obviously we've got interests outside of it, but like, people are just so passionate about it. You know, We go and have our version of corporate Fridays with some great friends down the road, and our conversations will start with soil, then move to grass, then move to beef production, and then move to you know manure fertiliser or other fertiliser, and it's just going, there's just so much passion around around the industry. But I think one of the things that I love most about agriculture is that
0: I couldn't agree more. I reckon that approachability of people, particularly the ones who have run or are running some of the big organisations or even just kind of success, successful um, smaller businesses as well, it's, it's that accessibility to people that is just, it's mind-blowing actually when you think about it. Mate, well, thank you so much for coming on for a chat. I think as well, People giving up their time. Thank you for for giving up yours this morning. Uh, we've we've battled a blackout. We've overcome that.
1: I uh, and... <laughs> I do, do apologise. I'm sure you're you're going to do a neat intro saying that there's a very pregnant pause and a change in audio quality. So we apologise. But...
0: <laughs> Luckily we weren't videoing because people would have just seen me scurrying around.
1: And... Yeah, yeah. I'm like <laughs> Ollie's very very still at the moment. It's, um... <laughs> no mate, thank you for for your time. I I enjoyed it, and you know, mate, I'm honestly a big fan of what you're doing. I, um, I like just as a concept, it's just such a wonderful idea to, to talk to, to different people in ag and share their stories. And you know, something um, you know, like there's an MLA, and everyone's always talking about it. It's like, how do we sort of take hold of the narrative? How do we do more positive things in our space? Like, I just one thing that really gets at my goat is when you know there's a perception in the media and in the city where it's like, you know, your environmental handles and you don't care about your animals or the environment. Like no one cares more about their ecosystem, their animals than farmers. I think what you're doing is a great way to hopefully reflect that.
0: Well, thank you so much, Charlie. That's very kind of you to to say, and I look forward to following your Xander journey this year and and seeing, yeah, maybe checking in later on in the year and seeing where you're at what you've learned and who are some of those people that maybe you've been able to talk them into coming on the podcast as
1: well. (laughs) Good on you, mate. (laughs) Take it easy, mate. Cheers. Thanks, Thanks. mate. Have a good one. Cheers.
0: Well, thank you so much for tuning in again. And if you enjoyed this episode and you've got a couple of minutes spare, we would love for you to rate and review it as this helps others discover the Humans of Agriculture podcast. What I found fascinating was Charlie's entrepreneurial ventures as a young kid. And what he didn't mention is that his brother's little business, or not so little business that he's gone on to do, is actually Bailey Nelson Eyewear. So if you haven't checked them out, it's actually a pretty incredible story in itself. Look forward to joining you guys again next week. It has been absolute chaos out there, and so I hope you're all staying safe and you're staying sane. And that this podcast is a nice distraction for you each week.